1: hey guys welcome to dadville i'm john and i'm dave today our guest is the one the only ted danson that what a huge moment can i i'm gonna say it again just because i want to say it i like how i feel when you say It, it today our guest is ted danson
0: still got goosebumps oh
1: man ted danson um, we couldn't believe that this actually happened. <laughs> and, full disclosure. Uh, full disclosure. This so is one of these moments. So, it sounds like uh, we're confused the whole time, it's because we're we can't
0: believe that it or or we're anticipating the. I'm kidding, guys. I'm, <laughs> like, just, just boom, yeah, he's, he's going, gone. Yeah,
1: yeah. If you don't know Ted Danson, uh, w- what what is your problem? Welcome to America. If if you don't know Ted Danson, welcome to
0: America. Yeah. Where uh, he has been in his an And I say that because of this. When I think of Ted Dancing, when I think of Ted, can we call him Ted? Because we're friends now. Teddy, oh, we friends I call now? him Teddy D. Teddy D. Yeah. TD. Touchdown Dancing. Oh, my gosh. Touchdown Ted Dancing. Rhythm is a dancing. Rhythm <laughs> is a dancing. Um, but the thing about Ted Dancing for me is Cheers, like my parents watched Cheers growing up. So he yeah. is a, you think of kind of like faces that you associate. TV wise with a childhood he is in that like oh, yeah. Mount Rushmore to me of like you know Sam on Cheers was was uh, was on TV it was a, a lot fixture in our house in he was our a fixture house. Yeah. yeah yeah
1: but his and he's done tons tons of stuff that we won't we won't list here but i have to say The Good Place is becoming one of my favorite shows yeah. and his character he's is so good so good he's so good it was great talking with him because he's so he has such a I mean, unique experience of life being yeah. like a mega celebrity for
0: as long as he has been a mega celebrity, yeah. and because um, he's been on a lot of shows that have done well. And I think as an actor, yeah. you know, if you think about someone that had a run like Cheers, it is hard, hard to come back after that, right? Because people are like, "Dude, you're Sam. High five. You're good. You can leave now." Yeah, we. You have made yourself into the zeitgeist, into the cultural legendary. TV status, right. go live on a ranch in Idaho.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's hard to avoid not just being a caricature of yeah, that Sam
0: Malone for the rest of, you know, your career. But man, he's done so many great. I mean, a three minute and, of baby so it's not only did he have success in TV, but was able to cross over into movies. I mean, and he's mm-hmm. still around. I mean, he's still he has a new show now. Oh yeah. We
1: should we should say his new show, Mr. Mayor is gonna be out next year it's yep. on
0: NBC yep. and I cannot wait cause but he's everything still he does cranking out stuff it's crazy yeah. which is a fun part of the conversation you know is to kind of say like you know to talk about still working and what's he learning that that was a really illuminative native yeah <laughs> is that a Dan Brown novel? <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh my gosh. No, that's who they that's who uh he was running from is the Illuminati. The the, The illuminative Illuminati natives. (laughs) The Illuminati. The Illuminatives. (laughs) The Illuminatives. Can we start that rap group right now? Um but uh but you know, just to hear him sort of speak to these moments he's had as a celebrity, these moments of clarity. You know, Mm -hmm. even even in this in this pandemic, in this quarantine season, you know, just yeah. to have him talk about like, man, I've had to really realize what work has meant to me and how that was so it I was. was so thankful for his his vulnerability in that. And yeah. I think, man, talk about that peppered that whole conversation to me was how unbelievably vulnerable and mm-hmm. open book he is. Which is funny, I mean, you know this and we talk about this in the episode, but you know, he and Mary, Steenberg and his wife, and if you want to talk about someone I mean, Ted is Ted is this too, but Mary is, has been in literally everything. I, I would argue she may be the most recorded on screen, be it yeah. movie or TV person in Hollywood right now, really would. Like, yeah. I think it shouldn't be Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. I think it should be Six Degrees of Mary Steam Steenburgen, because literally she has been in everything. Yeah, Like, it's a joke. If you go on her IMDb page, it is like, oh my, yeah, she was, and she was, you know, anyway, but you know, she's she's here in Nashville a lot. She's written with you. We talk about that in the yeah, podcast. Yeah, the podcast,
1: the- the
0: reason why we
1: were able to interview Ted was because I've written with Mary here in Nashville uh, several, several times, and she. So when she's not in some new movie,
0: she's writing songs. She's here, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: She's like working on the score for that movie. Yeah, and Ted
0: would, you know, come in and you know pick her up, which is the cutest thing ever. Oh my gosh, I know. He, we would be writing at
1: Universal, our publishing house company, and she would like text. She'd be like, "Okay, I think we're wrapping this up. I'm going to text Ted, and he'll come pick me up." I'm like, "Cutest thing ever." That is so cute. Cutest and then he thing ever. and she would be like, "Oh, Ted has to hear this. I'm I'm going to text him to see if he can come up and and play." So that's when I met Ted for the first time. He was coming to pick Mary up and he walked like into the writer's room and sat down and Mary was like, "Okay, John, but play play the song that we just She's wrote." She's like, "John, just, can you?" John? And I'm like, "I
0: can't. I can't. My <laughs> left eye is not working right now." <laughs> and he just went on the keys. <laughs> <laughs> from your nervous hands.
1: But I do want to say one thing, and I'm kind of spoiling it, but forgive me. I just feel like it was such a great moment that I don't want it to slip by listeners' ears. When you were asking him about just the, the onslaught of attention that he got mm. from Cheers, and he said, because he, he's a philanthropist as well, and I thought it was mm. really cool how he talked about how he only survived all that energy from taking it and channeling it into philanthropy. So he channeled all of that into co-founding American Oceans campaign, which is now Oceana. So he just like, he took all that energy and attention that, you know, I don't think it's the knee-jerk reaction, especially when you're young and you're making millions and bajillions of dollars to to take all of that attention and energy and do
0: Good, selfless, good with it. Yeah. But I, I thought I, it was cool yeah. how he was like, that's how I survived. That, that, one of the things that I love about this show that I'm always so grateful for is sort of leaving with, you know, five, three things that the guest has said that I'm like, that is incredible wisdom. And I think to hear Ted talk about how at such a young age, realizing I can't withstand the attention, fame, um, you know, of what this job is giving to me, but if I can redirect all of that into something bigger, then I'm, mm-hmm. and that I can do it. Yeah, I, that is profound. Yeah. I think one of the most significant lessons I've learned on this podcast so far that may be in the top three. Yeah, because I think that is such a universal truth, and I think anyone listening to this that's in a position like that that is that is just gospel truth. Yeah. We can't, and we talk about this with him, but we can't withstand that kind of. Thing. our backbones are too fragile as mm-hmm. humans and and you know I think to hear him say that was just like isn't that amazing and 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 he's such a, he seems like such an incredibly sane normal dude right and I think that right. is a huge reason why he is is because yeah. I think for whatever reason he was able to go you know what if I can redirect this then I can kind of be, just be the middle I'm not the receiving right end of it you know?
1: yeah it was great he's wise he's hilarious he's handsome. charming he's handsome and you're gonna love him Ted Danson Dadville. Uh, welcome to Dadville, everyone. Uh, our guest today is the one and the only Ted Danson, who is a Golden Globe and Emmy Award winning actor known for an array of exceptional performances, most memorably for his portrayal of the Boston bartender Sam Malone in NBC's multi-award winning and iconic comedy Cheers. Cheers as well as the acclaimed NBC comedy, The Good Place, which I love that show, for which it was nominated for his 14th Emmy Award, 14th for Outstanding Lead Actor and Receiving a Critics' Choice Award. Now here I'm going to kind of break with the script here because if I read every single achievement and accolade uh, that you have acquired, that would be the entire interview. So I'm just going to mention a couple things. I'm going to throw words like Fargo, CSI, Becker, Damages, Hearts Beat Out Loud, Three Men and a Baby, Bored to Death, Three Men and a Little Lady, and Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. In addition to being an actor and a producer, he's also an environmental activist co-founding the American Oceans Campaign, which merged with Oceana in 2001, which shows citizens that they can participate in protecting and restoring marine resources and to show congress that americans are concerned with these issues he's an actor a producer an activist a dad last but not least the husband of the very lovely and talented mary steen virgin okay that's the end of my list so as i'm reading that to you what's going on in your mind how how do you how do you feel when you hear all that stuff
2: it makes me realize no wonder i nap you know of course i'm napping. <laughs> Exactly. This is a fraction.
1: This is a fraction. I literally, I was going through all, all your achievements and writing them down in a notes app. And eventually I just highlighted the whole thing and deleted it. And it was like, this is not, we're not going to be able to do this. We're going to have to pick a few. And that's just a few.
2: So, you know, what's great about, let me rephrase this or else people will be a, writing in but (laughs) what you know like everything in life there are silver linings and one of the things about this moment that we're all going through um is you get to be reflective on a level that you pro i would not have taken the time to do and i'm a fairly rel- reflective supposedly enlightened dude but really i had no idea how much my trappings which is what you just read you know walking around with people going hey wow i love you i saw that i saw you in this hey you made me laugh haha which is kind of how i have walked around in life since cheers you take that away from me and all of a sudden I, you realize wow I depended on that so much that I really haven't uh, taken a good look at myself and um, mm-hmm. <laughs> not always, you know, with pleasant results. So uh, so to answer your question, when I was listening to that, at first I had a silly grin on my face like I was embarrassed. But then I, I kind of, uh, I'm grateful for all of that. It, I don't think it... Um, boosts my whatever you know my ego like it used to it it feels like this this is an amazing time this is a a great evener i don't i don't think celebrities are going to be the same you know i don't think we're going to hold celebrities the same way i don't think we're going to look up to people you know we're going to be looking up to the people who are uh putting their life on the line for all of us and this is not me doing false humility i really do believe that things have changed and you know hopefully i still get to act but i don't think it's going to be the same and i don't think it'll be the same for me is that scary to think about yeah i don't want to be uh i'd like to retire on you know when i decide to retire you know so so yeah it it is but it's real it's also real it's like oh one of the things that i have to keep reminding myself i don't know how you guys are doing at your age going through covid but i have to remind myself ted this is your life this moment is my life as well as the other you know acting running around doing stuff this moment where you have no idea what's next literally is still your life so you better enjoy it you better you better stay awake. You better not nap too much, you know, because this, right. this is what you got.
0: Do you feel like you're picking that up twice as much with Mary too, because y'all, y'all do the same thing. Like there's a similar sort of frequency y'all are both picking up on.
2: Uh, which part? What do you mean? Like, uh, just
0: with, as you're saying, you know, you're both in this world of celebrity and, you know, so many people know y'all so well and have so much affection for you. But, you know, as, as you take away that, collective with the both of you notoriety or you know there's a chance to really pause cuz i th- i was laughing thinking about this between the both of y'all i don't know that you could put together a male and a female who have probably worked with more people in in hollywood over y'all's careers i mean y'all are like the the kevin bacon game on steroids <laughs> Uh, especially collectively. And so I just think it's so interesting that when you have two people married that did the same thing in the season where you can really reflect on both of your achievements, because they're both so uh, profound. If she's feeling that, you know, if y'all have had a chance to talk about that between the both of
2: y'all. Yeah. But, you know, Mary, Mary is way more grounded than I am. Um, And I, and I've been on television longer. So the, the recognized, you know, She's made these amazing movies. She's won Oscars. She's won stuff, you know, and and been in some of the best films around. But film stars and TV stars are slightly different, you know. Uh, Television just shoots you out into the world at such a high level. Anyway, she's much more grounded, I think. And she's also a much more private person, you know. I'm a little bit... You know, I love talking to strangers. I'm happy to. Uh, it's easier to greet people than than to say sorry. Um, leave me alone. You know, for me, it is easier just to do that. And so, I'm much more kind of out there, gregarious in public, and Mary has much more of a sense of privacy. Um, so she she's much more grounded. When it comes to all of this, and and here's the real truth: she has music. You know, she's writing uh, every day. She's zooming with people in Nashville all the time to write music. She's she's working on a. Um, an animated film called The Underneath, which is just now going out to investors. But she's written all the music with uh, Troy Virgis and Caitlin Smith. And she's worked with John Osborne and Lucy on a song that they're putting out, you know, that's going to be animated. So she's, she is kind of has this double thing going in her life creatively. Yeah. Where some of that energy goes. Yeah. So she's, she's much more grounded, but I feel like I've, uh, I'm getting there. I'm getting there.
0: Yeah. So real quick,
1: let's go back. Just do like a, a quick kind of flyover to, you know, where you grew up, what your house was like growing up, you know, what your
2: parents did, all
1: that kind of stuff.
2: Can you give us just a quick fly over there? Yep. Yep. My, um, uh, my father was an archeologist, anthropologist teacher, then, uh, so Indiana had- Jones we were yeah Uh, southwest version not international he was uh arizona and new mexico that four corners area and we always lived way out in the country and i we i was surrounded by scientists literally it went all over my head my sister soaked it up but it went over my head and i just played you know and then we moved to flagstaff where he became the director of the museum and the research center and it was dedicated to the hopi navajo zuni pueblo indians not just it was a natural history museum but part of the mandate was to support the culture of those groups Um, so my best friends literally growing up were uh, you know my friend raymond who was hopi and ross who was hopi and herman who was navajo and Uh, and then a couple of ranchers, sons and daughters, and we lived way out. So it was literally jump on horses and ride that away, you know, and make sure you're home for dinner. Uh, it was idyllic. Um, yeah. So then, uh, went away to school because all my, my sister was going away to a college back East. Some of my rancher friends who'd been homeschooled were going away to school. So all of a sudden I went, I was in Connecticut as a 13-year-old, and then Stanford, and then fell in love with acting, and then went to Carnegie Mellon to study, then New York for seven years, and then L.A., and then Cheers.
0: <laughs> cheers, both the show and Cheers, and congratulations. Yeah. So, so <laughs> can you talk about, like, your mom and dad? What, what were their, What was it like growing up in, in that house, and what were their personalities like, and, you know, what, what were they like?
2: slightly from a different planet they uh uh in a wonderful a wonderful planet but it was as if my family you know never quite left the 50s we never had a television um my mother who was a homemaker uh but also because my father was the director of the museum we would have like one, two family meals in an entire summer. The rest of the time, she was entertaining scientists from all over the world. For, you know, for a dinner for eight people or whatever. You know, so she would, and and this was a two-story log cabin, by the way, that belonged to the museum, and um, yeah, it was very rustic. It was very, uh, even though my father had grown up with money he was a, the director and, you know, made $10,000 a year. Uh, and so it was strange. We looked like, we looked like we were really poor the way we dressed and the way we, you know, we didn't go out to dinner. We went on picnics. We did all of that kind of stuff, but I did go away to a school, obviously. So
0: did that register with you as a kid? Did you, did, would you find yourself, did you have the, you know knowledge of like oh we don't make a lot of money or, or no no yeah,
2: no it yeah. never dawned on me and i no, nor did i was i interested but uh i mean literally i would go out with my friend raymond to the hopi mesas i don't know if you know that part of the world but there are three really large mesas that make up the hopi reservation which is where they have lived they, they never went to war against the United States, so they were never moved. So their villages on top of these mesas uh, were there for the last, you know, thousand years. There's some, the oldest inhabited village in America was a village called Walpi. there. So you could go there and watch. I would go with my friends, uh, my friend Raymond, and and uh, we'd play in these villages just being, you know, eight-year-olds. And the, the plaza— uh, there there would be kachina dances where you could watch uh, uh, people pray to their gods, in essence, the same way they had for the last 500 years. And then I'd go to an Episcopal church on Sunday back down in Flagstaff. So it was this amazing kind of glimpse that, oh, people are different. People have different cultures. People pray and relate to spirituality differently. And so it, it had this inclusiveness that the anthropologist, uh, you know, point of view were all the same. And my mother's kind of spiritual church point of view. Um, So it's really a neat way to grow up.
0: Gosh, that's fascinating. I'm
2: looking at the picture of these
0: mesas and they're just stunning.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what was the relationship with you and your dad? Like, like, it sounds like he was very social and there were people around all the time. I'm guessing he had a lot on his plate. Was it, did you ever feel like you were fighting for his attention or anything like that
2: no no. uh although it was just clear that um that he wasn't going to pick up a football and throw it at you know notice how i said throw it at me i was gonna say that's how much football we threw around you know um but it was like you know later in life maybe you know in my 20s i kind of went or thirties. I'm a, I'm a very slow learner. A part of me went, well, that's, that's, that was different. Um, my mother was, you know, loved being a mother, loved any kind of creativity. She wouldn't let me buy toy guns, but if I carved them, which I did, I made a whole mess of wooden guns, then it was creative and she was okay about that. She was, she would support anything that was creative. My fra- father was a little more practical. I knew he loved me. I knew he was proud of me, but we, we just, uh, we on a different wavelength kind of, you know, until I was in my forties and then we connected big time. No, that's fascinating. Yeah. And what brought that about the, the sort of reconnection? Oh, just me growing up, you know, and him sharing himself finally, you know, mm.
0: had he retired then? Yeah. Yeah. It is a consistency. I think that, that, um, myself and a lot of my friends because a lot of you know uh our parents are retiring right now and there is this really interesting thing that's happening with a lot of our dads where it feels like all of a sudden there's just all access and in a little bit of like you get read in you know it's like I've talked to so many of my guy friends and when our fathers come up and most of us thankfully have really great dads but they'll just say yeah it's like all of a sudden I have access to these rooms. That until now, not that he was guarding, but there just wasn't a way to to, to get to him. Yeah, I and mean, it's like you know you ha- start having these conversations. I mean, my mom and dad started talking about stuff in our childhood well you know that's why we did this and i was like wait what and they're like oh yeah we never told y'all because and you start going like oh my gosh you know um and so it feels like there is something about retirement i think with with dads that, that seems pretty consistent for kind of like you know let me tell you a story son <laughs> and you're kind of like whoa i don't you
2: know? want to school you two young pipsqueaks but there is there is a little bit of you know you all grew up too you know? Uh, all of a sudden you're facing stuff that you realize, sorry, that was stupid. I, I hope you took that as a, I'm just glad you called us young. <laughs> uh, I've, you know, I found myself turning to my parents when I reached an age where I was dealing with something that I would go, Oh, wait a minute. I'm not oh, 100%. You know? Yeah. They did that. There's a point to, I took me a while, I guess. You know, I don't know if you ever rebelled against parents, but I was a late rebeller, man. I was the nicest, sweetest, kindest, most sensitive, uh, uh, obeyed everybody, you know, until I got to my 40s. Then I kind of brought them to their knees. Uh, I I was a late bloomer. (laughs) The thing you realize somewhere along the line is, oh, they're. They were they were just this boy and girl who got together and uh were doing the best they could, just like you are, you know. It's like, oh, I get it. We all are doing the best we can and hopefully you're self-reflective to some degree, you know.
0: It seems too that there's a consistency with, with people with my friends, you know, uh in their late thirties, early forties that that exactly what you just said ted where it's like i think everybody kind of well I, that's way too general I, I know a lot of people and myself kind of go through this where you get really mad, like you sort of wake up to your to your parents and however they parented you and whatever the things you didn't like be it a million things or five there's this season it feels like where you kind of get you know you're like oh man I, you know i didn't realize my dad didn't do this or my mom said this this one time whatever but then i think what seems to follow after that is also this really gracious thing as you get older where you're like where you know the things that you sort of demanded that didn't happen you get to the age of, and you're enlightened enough to kind of go like i wish my dad had been more like this or my mom had been more like this whatever but then i think it seems to me again with a lot of my friends we've had this conversation that not long after that a couple years you you have like the second round where you go but you know what I'm doing the best I can. They were doing the best they can. And so it's like whatever that sort of judicious spirit is followed by this sort of more gracious, you know, what I'm just glad that we don't hate each other and, you know, they were just doing the best they can, you know?
2: You know, not, not everybody gets to be loved unconditionally, you know, not every kid. And I, I was blessed. I got, you know, I was, we may have been a bit of a circus, our family, but we, we wouldn't, my sister and I both knew we were loved, you know, and that's a, that's a big leg up in life.
0: We talk about this a lot on the podcast, but I think one of the great gifts you can give your kid is that they know one that they're loved and you know, that you enjoy them. Yeah. You know, that, you find, that you find real joy in, in, being their parent. I think that's like maybe the most substantial gift you can give a kid, you know?
2: And usually when parents are messing usually when I messed up as a parent, it was because I was fearful. Wow, you know, I was fearful that I I I had to fix something and I didn't know how. I had to make sure they went in this direction as opposed to appreciating where they were. I wish I could go back. I I wasn't horrible, but I wish I could go back and use that word you just said. You know, appreciate them more.
1: Well, one thing that I've I've realized doing this podcast and interviewing some people who are you know authors and learned folks is how much we as parents project our own stuff on our kids. All of the things that I, you know, I'm concerned with my daughter making friends at school. She's, she's fine. Like literally I tell this story in an interview that we did where I was doing this kind of parent orientation thing and all the kids went out to the field to play. And a couple of the teachers are taking them out and they're gonna to talk to the parents. And the whole time I'm distracted looking out the window, watching my daughter, Luca, because she's playing with a leaf on the ground. And all the some other kids are playing kickball. And I'm like, and then she'll get close to another group. And I'm like, okay, great. She's found some friends. Oh no, she's back with the leaf again. You know. I've been told, like, no, that's not her thing. She's fine. Yeah, this is all you. This is your baggage that you're bringing to the, to the
0: equation. You know, speaking of, as you started to get into, to acting, kind of speaking of parent parental fear, one, I'm just curious how you got the bug, but two, how did your parents respond to that? You know, because obviously that's, a, that's I'm guessing be your a pretty- mom
2: loved it. <laughs> yep. yeah. right.
0: yep. And how, what'd your dad
2: think? Um but he was supportive kind of like that you know um and you know after a while it was like you know I think that's great that you love this maybe you should you know make sure you get your your degree so you could teach you uh-huh. know uh, so you have a fallback but that's his job you know that's Right it. Well you talk about checking both
1: boxes it's like yeah I'm going to be an actor but dad hang on I'm going to go to Stanford And
2: Carnegie Mellon. Well, I didn't fall in love. So my little thing was basketball. At prep school, I went to Kent. Um, Uh If I hadn't had basketball, I would have just shriveled up, you know, died. I was so over my head and so kind of like a fish out of water. But basketball just, you know, thrilled me. I was any any decent sized high school would kick our butts. But we were a small 300, you know, boys' school, uh, and we were league champions, and it was just ah, just thrilled me. And then I went to Stanford, and my best friend and I, and he was actually a good athlete, <laughs> went went to Stanford freshman tryouts and basketball. And this was the same year that Lou Alcindor was a freshman at UCLA. Kareem was a freshman at UCLA. So I, I got. <laughs> My friend went out on the court and started shooting around. I stopped. I didn't even step on the line crossing into the court. I just looked and went, oh, oh, oh I see. You know, I just went from being a, a, a half-recent forward to be I would have become the slowest, clumsiest guard, you know, out there at 6'2". Um, so that was a big disappointment. But then I think the next year um, – And boy, did I, I didn't take going to school very seriously. I just, (laughs) here's my morning. I would wake up uh, around 11 o'clock and I would turn on my little black and white console TV on the floor, which I had was my first TV at age, you know, 19. And I tuned in and saw the Dick Van Dyke show. And I just was in heaven. I thought, oh my God. Who is this man? Who is it? What is this show? And then uh, when it was off, I'd turn it off. And then I'd get on this tree stump that we had hauled up to our uh, dorm room to be this kind of coffee table. But it was a sizable tree stump that I could get on. And I'd blare out some music. This was the 60s. And I would dance on the tree stump for a good half hour. Uh, I wouldn't say I was like a go-go boy. it was better dancing than that, but you know I would <laughs> dance for about half an hour then I'd get on my bicycle and I'd mosey down to the campus and see if any of my classes were still going. still happening uh, and that was that was Stanford University for you'd me.
1: ride your bike down to admissions and see if you're still enrolled
2: right <laughs> which you know, I don't I don't think they kick anyone out at Stanford unless you do something horrible to someone else kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but then uh, one day there's, in the cafeteria, there was a young lady named Beth who uh, I was hoping to ask out. And I finally got the nerve to ask her for coffee. And she said yes. And we went to the student union and we were there for about five minutes. And she did the old, you know, look at her clock. Oh shoot, I forgot. I have an audition to go to uh, around the corner here. And I went, oh, can I come with? Can I come with you? And she went, uh, okay. So I went with her. And to get in the room, you had to audition for something. So I, I made something up, and you go get your tree stump. What's I need? <laughs> I uh, <laughs> got my tree stump, and I made something up, and people laughed. And I remember my mind, my brain going, oh,
1: this isn't basketball. I'm um, in. But do you remember what you did?
2: No, it was made up. And I got into the play and I, with, you know, the smallest part you could have and still be in it. I was like the. It was a Berthold Brecht play, and I was I was like the third soldier from the left kind of guy. <laughs> but, oh, my God, I was hooked. I, I had a family station wagon with a uh, sleeping bag in the back, and I pulled it up to the theater, and I never left. And then people said, if you're serious, you should go back east to study, and off I went.
0: That's one of the craziest intros to a career I've ever right heard. I know.
2: And I didn't even think career. All I thought was, whatever this is, I have to do this now forever. I didn't I right. you know, and for the longest time it didn't matter if I was being hired or if I was in an acting class. Just as long as I was acting. That's all I cared about.
0: But you really loved it. Like when when you did that, you felt this like thing.
2: Light bulb went off. I now know why I'm here. Everything makes sense. Wow.
1: Because you had no TV growing up, so it's not yeah. like you were watching Dick Van Dyke at home. No. Do you remember what what the experience was like the first time your parents saw you on stage?
2: Yeah, it was uh, a Strindberg play at Stanford, and there's one scene where I kissed somebody in my character, and uh, I think my mother was trying... I think it was probably awful, okay, the play. So my mother was... Uh, she, she doesn't do phony well, but she was trying to be supportive. So I could tell something was <laughs> up. And my and my father's only comment was, yeah, your kiss was too loud. You know,
0: <laughs> your kiss was too loud. <laughs> <laughs> has, has there ever... I can't stop laughing. Has there ever been a critique? i that for
1: Mary, too, a lot, by the way. <laughs> You're consistent. Look, you have...
0: <laughs> you have a thing you do and that's your, your thing is too loud. It's such an interesting feature critique. <laughs> that means of all the things that happened, that was the moment he was
2: like, yeah, what
0: you can yeah. really work on. Wow. He
2: clearly was right, but <laughs> he softened it up. <laughs> I didn't invite him to too many more plays after that.
0: <laughs> so, so did you like then move down to LA or when did you eventually sort of get into the, to the acting scene, you know,
2: New York first. I mean, we all, Carnegie was all about theater. You'd wake up at eight, you'd go to some sort of yoga, vocal warm up, then you'd go to acting class and you'd hammer a, a set together for whatever production. And it was, it was all acting, voice, speech all day. And I was just, you know, you'd get up at seven and you'd fall into bed at midnight. I just could not get enough of it then we all graduated and none of us got into repertory companies which is what that school was kind of a a prep for you to get into the repertory system and none of us got hired so we all kind of on mass about 15 of us went off to new york and kind of did our postgraduate work on the streets of new york and yeah i started uh, getting a job here a job there i was off broadway and um, for about a year and a half and then I basically couldn't get arrested and I noticed that what I loved was whenever I got to audition for anything film, even though I didn't get it, it was like exciting to me. And then uh, I was married and knew that we were about to start a family and I think basically I wanted to come out west to be closer to my roots and and also where I wanted to work, which was LA. And so wh- where was
0: Cheers? Like, when did that happen after the move?
2: Uh, we got there in 78. Uh, my daughter was born 79, one of my kids. And uh, yeah, so I think, I think I did a couple of films first. I did a, a, a police film called The Onion Field, which was pretty cool. I did Body Heat. And um, so Cheers was 1982. And then that was just, we didn't go blasting off into huge success for, for about a year and a half. Uh, I know we're not supposed to mention Bill Cosby's name, you know, on air anymore. But he and his show and uh, all those amazing actors that were with him really brought the entire Thursday night lineup. Uh, we became a top ten show because of his show. That's behind him. Um, yeah and then and then it
0: just it's like everybody just got it all of a sudden
2: yeah yeah that's crazy i read this
0: blew my mind that y'all's finale had 80 million people i mean and you said this so well before and this is why i love doing this because i just don't know these things but to your point that you know tv is such a super shot in the stardom or notoriety where you know movie is a little more of a slow burn but i mean when you when you hear the numbers 80 million people it's like at that point i would imagine literally every human being you see for the rest of the the, the next day it's like oh i know who you are you know if they didn't the day before chances are out of 80 million people they were probably one of those people
2: yeah it is it is crazy Uh, um it's a little bit like being a five-year-old, and all the adults in the room all of a sudden put all of their focus on you. And you know, you've seen that with kids. You can uh-huh. spin a, you can spin a kid out. Yeah. You know, that energy and focus just they go nutty, um, and that's kind of what celebrities like. Um, I was lucky early on in the Cheers years. Um, I um, stumbled into. Probably because I wanted to show my father, hey, I may not be a scientist. I may be just a silly actor, but I'm I'm surrounding myself with scientists like you did. Because I bumped into an environmental lawyer in Santa Monica who was trying to stop offshore oil drilling. And this was probably about 1987, maybe, something like that. And we, long story, but we teamed up and we defeated the oil company permanently and we loved the conversation and our relationship and so we started something called american oceans campaign which we can talk about but my point is i i early early on in my career realized that all of that energy coming at me was if i said thank you so much for watching Cheers or whatever. Thank you so much. Now, I'd like you to meet this marine biologist that I'm standing next to because she has something important to tell you. I used that energy, deflected it into something I cared about, you know, because I did realize it it had power to it. So I, you know, luckily stumbled into being an ocean advocate. And it really, you know, has been the most important thing in my life as far as the work part of my life not my family.
1: But That's really cool. Cause I feel like that all that energy is going to go somewhere. It's either right. going to mess you up big time or you can channel it into something, you know, useful, useful like you've done.
2: By the way, there's not a trap, a celebrity trap that I haven't fallen head over heels into. I don't mean that I, it saved me from being an asshole. I definitely still was an asshole, but, but there was some degree of sanity in my life, right? Uh, because of that, um,
0: yeah. I feel like that you know, in in Nashville, you know, our our version is very different than the TV LA Hollywood version because it's you know, to your point, the TV fame is such a ubiquitous kind of fame, but which may be redundant. To say ubiquitous in fame, but I, I do think like conversations that I find with people are, that that sort of surround the success p- conversation. You know, how do you deal with success? And I think you just did such an eloquent job of one of the best ways to deal with it is to deflect it, to guide it into something else, to make it a benevolent situation as opposed to a, I'm going to absorb all this attention. Because, you know, I just, and, and people have different thoughts about this, but I really believe we just can't handle that as humans. You know, I think our backbones are a little too fragile for the weight of that kind of notoriety. And so it's really profound. And I think that's really, you know, whether you knew you were doing that or not, to your point, it's still so profound that some of the, probably what kept you above water, pun intended, with the (laughs) project is, you know, that you knew, okay, I'm going to sort of like guide this energy into something that isn't just me. Because, you know, because when you, I just think we can't, we don't do it well. It's, It's very rare you find a human that can really, withstand that kind of success and fame and not just go loopy.
2: And that being said, this last four months, I realized, nope, you know, I'm not unscathed. I am, you know, I am so in a bubble and so uh, privileged um, that I had no idea how privileged I was. And I think that's what's amazing that's happening out in the world that we are starting to look at race and um, how the burden of carrying racism can't just be on black people anymore. It has to be on white shoulders as well, because, you know, that is that is that's our country, man. know you you it's okay you know i think i always pointed oh well that guy over there that's a racist my god look what look what he's doing how horrible you know i that ain't me man and uh, but then i would hear something incredibly wrong and i'd go oh my god that's wrong and then go on with my life you know that that we all need to anyway I think this is an amazing time, to be honest. I really do. It is full of suffering and sadness and beyond belief. But it's also a moment where you can really look at, I mean, when would we have paused yeah. as an earth? When would we have stopped and, went and had the opportunity, at least, whether we do or not, the opportunity to go, wait a minute. What is working? What's not? You know, and what's not is so clear. You know, that uh, it could be exciting, but the people who don't want to give up their status in life or whatever are going to fight very hard. You know, oil companies are not going to all of a sudden go, wow, you're right. Uh, We should leave all this oil in the ground, which is worth trillions of dollars so that we don't, you know, uh, burn up the planet. Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah. anyway.
1: So your work with that, with Oceana, was that a rude awakening, would you say?
2: I mean, it started out slowly. So it was, at first it was beat up on the oil companies, stop them from drilling oil, uh, drilling for oil out in the water. That's still really important. But what you discovered when when American Oceans campaign, which was really kind of a, we had about seven or eight people working for us. It was really kind of a celebrity campaign boutique organization but it was the f- one of the first out there that was talking about oceans and we had a lobbyist in washington and da, 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 da. but when we merged with oceana which was brand new the discovery was for me was yes coastal pollution is a big deal and all of that but literally we're fishing out our oceans you know, the, the science was since 1987, the boats were more and more boats were going out, bringing back fewer and fewer fish, you know. So if we literally continue to fish the way we did by being so destructive and wasteful, you could theoretically fish out the oceans. Yeah. If you, on the other hand, manage your oceans so that they're sustainable. If you could quantify landed fish this way, you could if done correctly have a billion fish meals a day for the world to eat, a billion fish meals a day forever. And you would t- it's a clean protein, you don't use fresh water to make it, you're not cutting down a rainforest and using a lot of groundwater to grow something to feed it to a pig or a cow. It's kind of the perfect protein. So all of a sudden when that package of oh save the oceans feed the world came together for me then it was like a very powerful statement and all of a sudden people were funding us who were maybe not that interested necessarily in what's under the water but very interested in feeding the planet because that's a big deal it's going to become a bigger deal
1: yeah
0: You know, John, with normal life still being on pause for the most part, for a lot of us, I know a lot of people are having a hard time.
1: I know. It's been such a strange year for us. I mean, you and I like getting out on the road and performing, and that's one of the joys of my life, and not being able to do it has really thrown my balance off.
0: Luckily, with technology, finding access to licensed professional counselors to help with our problems is easier than ever with BetterHelp.
1: BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist to help make life a little more comfortable in these trying times.
0: The interesting thing about BetterHelp is you can send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule a weekly video or phone session with them.
1: BetterHelp has licensed professionals who specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships,
0: sleeping, and many, many more areas. And it's affordable and convenient. I want you all to start living a happier life today, and BetterHelp is offering 10% off your first month by visiting BetterHelp.com.
1: Join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health, Again, that's betterhelp.com, B E T T E R H E L P.com slash dadbill.
0: I think one of the coolest things about how hard this pandemic has been, one of the silver linings to your point, even earlier. It has kind of been this nice hit pause on the planet. I mean, I've, I've I've been obsessed with these articles that are like, look at this part of any any of the major cities in the world. But like, I think it was Mumbai it was like, look at the pollution three months ago and look at it now. And it's like crystal clear skies. I texted a really dear friend of mine who lives in L.A. And he was like, I usually can't because I just said, dude, what is the pollution like? This was like a month ago. He's like, I'll just here's a picture from my window. I used to not be able to see that hill. Yeah. And I think yeah. it is this really cool moment, not just for, you know, people to take a, a break and breathe, but it almost feels like the planet's getting this like, woo, you know. which I wonder, I wonder if, if y'all have seen that, you know, with, with your nonprofit, if, if the oceans are sort of, I, I saw today an article where there are these baby turtles off of the coast of somewhere in, in, uh, micro Asia, I think that was like, there's turtles that haven't been able to breed like they are right now because the beaches are empty. So you just think the world, it just feels like the world's like, and refresh. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, yes, that is true. And the, the 100,000 pound gorilla in the room is climate change. Because so many things have been put into motion because of burning fossil fuels that are, you can't really take back, you know. Our oceans have warmed up so much by absorbing carbon Uh, dioxide that that will not reverse you know know, and that's that's making so many changes like the fish you used to catch off your coast is now 150 miles north looking for cold water oh yeah yeah yeah. so many different things happening anyway hey good talking to me huh
1: (laughs) well hopefully this time you know lets uh, the world at large know what at least we're capable of. Yeah. We're forced to slow down for a bit and we can see some tangible changes. We can't, you know, fix everything, but at least we're able to see like, Hey, you can, you know, you can make a difference. Yeah. So can you tell us quickly about what it was like just becoming a dad for the first time?
2: Wow. Well, it was, uh, um, it was amazing. Um, I mean, my pause was, um, this was um, the mother of my children. When my eldest was born, she had a massive stroke during delivery. So the actual moment of <laughs> becoming a, f- a father was fraught with, uh, uh, you know, uh, adrenaline to say the least. And uh, and and she's fine and had an am- is having an amazing life and all of that. Um, she's my ex-wife, to be clear. And my daughter is amazing. So it uh, it had a hard earned, especially for my you know my then wife, uh, happy ending. Uh, but one of the things that came as a result of that, obviously, was I was the sole caretaker for three or four months, as far as you know being able to. Of course, I had parents and things like that, but I was. Um, so the what i probably maybe i'm guessing I would have acquiesced to here uh you know i'll help but here here's here's our baby you you know i probably wouldn't have taken such ownership uh, at in, in uh, so quickly of uh, uh, my young youngest uh i mean my kate uh if i if that hadn't happened so i mean it's amazing it's 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 a tube you don't always go through it smelling like a rose I, I, I by the way I love my kids and I have an amazing relationship and I always have I don't want to paint myself as you know whatever but it is it is uh, did you ever see Mary's film that she was in called Parenthood mm-hmm. uh-huh. you should watch it again man it's amazing the this it's great movie about parenthood. And there's this line, I can't remember who said it, whereas you never get to cross the line and spike the football, you know, as a parent, you are always in that tube. Yeah. Uh, never Quite enough, you know,
1: but I'd have to imagine though that working with your daughter, obviously, you know, years later on a project, like she's in the business with you, she's written this movie and you guys are working together. You have a great relationship. That's as close to spiking the football, in my in my opinion. Am I off on that? What was that experience like?
2: That didn't happen. <laughs> Sorry, I'm stumbling around. That didn't happen. Um, you know, Charlie, Mary's son... Charlie, we we came together. Mary and I met when I was forty-five, and I think she was forty, and we both had two children. I had two daughters, and Mary had a son and a daughter. Now he went off and wrote and became a director, and Mary's worked with him, um, and I guess I have too once, Um, Uh you know. So uh, I'm thinking of the movie The Rights. This may be a Wikipedia moment
1: where you've done so many movies.
0: Yeah, I just, I, w- I would love to interject right here and say this one time, one of my favorite moments of my career, I was out uh, playing shows on tour, my label calls and they says, Hey, will you go do this TV interview? It's going to be a morning TV, which none of us, Ted, maybe you do. I know that John and I don't, but nobody loves like, especially performing on morning TV. You're waking up hours ahead of time to try to get your voice. you know, even if you do, or you just get off the bus, which I did this time literally and just walked right in and think, but, Live on air. I see her grab my Wikipedia. This is right as Wikipedia is happening. And so she's holding the sheets and I'm like, and it's like, all right, we're 10. And I'm like, are you reading from there? She's like, yeah, yeah. And as I was about to go, don't do that. Because one of my friends had purposefully hijacked my Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> the director's like, we'll roll it. And so I'll just have to go. And she literally starts. She's like, all right, we're here with Dave Barnes. Now, Dave, some fun facts about you. And I'm like, this is going to be a crap show. And she goes, um, is it true that you're Peter Cetera's son? And I was like, that is not that is not true. And she was like, oh, OK. And you can see her like, oh, boy. <laughs> and then she literally says, she goes, well, is it true then? that your first tour was opening for van halen and i was like that is actually not true either and you could just see that she was like this is all that i have and now it's worthless and i felt like this is why i should be careful about it because I called my friend immediately the next, you know, we got him and I was like, I just want you to know that you just won. And I told him and he was like, I'm so sorry. I was like, no, no, no. I, that was actually a really moment. That was a moment of joy for me to watch this sweet woman, just real time. And I think I just started talking. I was like, no, I, you know, no, I grew up and she was just like, thank you so
2: much. Thank I know it's so crazy. Great. Yeah. John, let me go back and answer your question though, in a way slightly differently, but there's, there's a moment as a parent, when kids are just starting to get out in the world and you're you're in cheerleader mode you're like that's fantastic hey will you help me with such and such you don't really need their help but you want to be a cheerleader and encouraging and and all that and then there's a moment where it becomes do you have a moment i really do need your help you know or your advice or uh, and all of a sudden now we're in this place where I so value my children's and my stepchildren's point of view and uh, I'm so grateful that they're in my life as a full contributor to, you know, to my life and my my well-being because they are so smart, loving kind, and it's no longer, uh, I'm looking up to them. I'm hoping that they will spend time with me kind of feeling. And that's, that's, uh, that's amazing. That's a, a true gift. That's the spiking the football moment. Yeah, it yeah. is. It is indeed. What are
0: the things that are tricky? Cause I'm sure, and maybe there's just so many that you, we skipped this question, but that are tricky about being a parent who's in the public spotlight, like are, are there disciplines that you've that, especially in their, you know, younger um, seasons of life that you tried to be careful of or not careful of, or, you know, I can't imagine how precarious that is. Yeah, Um, What was that like? Like, how did you do that? And did you feel like it was different than
1: every other just kind of normal dad?
2: Yeah. I don't know. You know, I wish my kids were here to answer that because they're the ones who really could answer it. I mean, they, it it was the water they were swimming in so they got used to it but it's a lot you know is this person a friend because of who my father is or you know you do you do they had to develop radar kind of to make their way in the world um but there are incredible benefits too. I mean it's, it's it's like trying to knock celebrity. you know it's, it's it's a double-edged sword for sure, but it's also amazing. The number of doors that open and the access you have to people to some degree, I'm sure was true for them as well. Uh, not in our business, you know, you maybe get an introduction that someone else might not have had, but no one gives you a job because of who your parents are. Because that's money's now on the table, so you know, no one's going to do that. Um, I, there are times when you know you, you want to have a family moment, and uh, and you're interrupted by um, people that wasn't always, I'm sure, fun for them. Um, and without doubt, I uh, I buried myself in my work a lot. I don't know, Barry, that's kind of negative, but I I loved working and I was working a lot. And I'm sure that had an impact on my children. Well, and with what
1: you do and with what we do, just being in the arts and being musicians, being an actor, there's kind of only one way, one mode you can go into, which I'm always so fascinated to talk with artists and actors who are, who are parents have kids and who care and want to be good parents because the two are at odds so often. I mean, it's not like you can, you can take some time off, you can back it down, but that's so scary as, you know, someone who's in the arts cause you're dealing with, you know, each, you're jumping from job to job us artists always feel like that last song that I wrote is the last song I'm ever going to write in my life. And you know, you're battling with just the unknown of your industry. So you kind of have to just go full on all the time and ride the wave that you're on. And I'm always just interested in hearing the perspective because I feel like it, everything that a parent does affects their kids. And sometimes I feel like with what I do as a occupation It's costing my kids something every time I have to leave for a tour. You know, I'm I'm costing them time with me, and vice versa. So I'm just always interested in hearing what
2: that perspective is like. Yeah, Mary has a a great story where uh, she lived uh, not in L. A. She was kind of smart and had her kids out uh, um, in another about an hour and a half north. She lived in this little town and raised your kids there and um, but she at a certain you can bring your kids with you when they're young enough you know you just uh-huh. and she was mostly making movies so she would almost always be out of town and she would just bring them and put them in a school there and rent a house and you know live there for three or four months but then there's an age when the kids don't want to do that they want to and they can't get out of school and all that. So she was full of guilt and she was about to leave. And she talked to Lily, her eldest who was like, I'm not sure, like maybe six, five, maybe five or something like that. And she said, uh, honey, I'm, I'm about to go to uh, a way to do some work. And, uh, um, you know, and I, I'm sorry that I have to leave and all of that, but, um, I, someday I hope that you have a job that you love going to as much as I do. And she went on and on and on about, you know, and, um, this is my job and I love my job and I hope you do. And after this whole big, long story, her daughter looked up and said, well, picking my nose, that's my job. <laughs> and it was like, okay. She had she was totally I hope that story was all right to tell.
1: Every every time I try to have a moment like that, my kids ruin it. I'm like, this is a serious moment right now.
2: As long as you're happy and you share your happiness with your children whenever you can and however you can, you know, by and large, they'll be all right. That was something
0: I remember uh talking to a friend of ours, Drew Holcomb, who's a great uh artist here in town. And he and his wife Ellie, <clears throat> like y'all, both do the same thing. They're they're both um singer, songwriters, and and they used to Ellie used to sing with Drew and his band, but she's kind of doing her own thing now. And I remember talking to him about it, and and I was so moved by this because I thought it was really powerful and it speaks to your story. But he just said, you know, they both realized that when they would each have to leave instead of saying daddy's got to go work, uh, you know, daddy gets to go do his job. Daddy uh, gets, right. mom gets, And right. I thought that's a really subtle, it's minutia, but it's really profound because I think what it communicates is, you know, I love what I get to do. I don't like being with you, but this is something that gives me a lot of joy. And I think, you know, it's such a different, it's such a paradigm shift from saying like, you know, which I'm real, I am really guilty. I was like, daddy's got to go. And I'm so sorry. And I carried on this guilt but trying to, you know, phrase that in a way that's a little more, that shines the light on the joy you get, you know.
2: Yeah, you're inviting them to celebrate with you as opposed to be sad with you. That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right.
1: So I know that you need to go. Your time is very valuable, and you have been so generous giving us this time. We have just a couple questions that we would like to end on. So, is there a moment, or there could be one or two, um, when you know, at any point? when your kids were younger at any point where you would love to go back to that moment, not to do anything differently, but just to relive that moment. If, are there any moments that come to your mind?
2: I'm bad at that because whether it's, whether it's good or bad or denial or, you know, whatever I, uh, no, I love, I love these moments I'm having now with my children. Um, as far as that thing where you miss the, you know, life is this one has this wonderful thing called grandchildren. And that's about when you're going to be so sad that you don't get to pick them up and hug them and kiss them and all that stuff you can do with a two year old. Uh, if you're blessed, you get grandchildren and you get to do that. And I used to think when people would say, oh, wait till you have grandchildren that, gosh, they must not have liked their kids. I, I love my kids. You know, grandchildren i don't feel like i'm lacking anything i have my you know my children but there's something something different man when all of a sudden you get to when you're getting older you all of a sudden get to play with this brand new little human being it's truly amazing yeah so you know no your answer is now yeah it's yesterday i love hanging out with my children in this in this You know, we're all adults. We're all people. We're all to some whatever degree we're kind of actualized. We are, you know, and then we get to share our lives with each other, and we are blessed that we're telling each other we love each other, you know, nonstop. You know, this is um, for me an amazing time in life. Do you think there's
0: something in the acting world because y'all live such a seasonal life, which is actually very akin, as you know, to to musicians' lives because you kind of have you know, touring seasons, then you don't, and then you're home for a while. And, you, and you know, it, it's, or even if you're just doing weekends, like country artists tend to do where you kind of do the weekend warrior thing where you're gone from, you know, Wednesday night to to Sunday morning or something. But do you think that has helped you as a parent break down life into bits and pieces that are a little easier to, to digest than, you know, did, did you find yourself as a parent kind of thinking along that structure as a parent, you know, like, you know, okay, we're shooting the show for this long and then we'll go do some fun stuff in this little section or, you know.
2: Well, uh, because I was always, I did do some films, but my life was really very much like a school year for my kids. I'd start, I'd start earlier, maybe mid July or if I if we were lucky, August. But then uh, I was out, you know, by May, sometime in May, I was through. So we did have summer vacations. We could plan on a month and a half being together. And because they were out of school and I had worked hard for nine months or whatever, there was this wonderful kind of earned right to go off and be together. That's all changed now, you know, because they're now not three networks or four networks. They're, you know, 40 different outlets production is going around the clock. Uh, so um, yeah, it's been a little harder to find that time.
0: And when you were doing, you know, shows like you are saying when there was only three or four networks, are those, I just don't know this. So those days usually like 12 hour days or, or how would your days look? When you well,
2: you were- uh, half hour sitcom is the life of Riley, man. You are, you come in at eight or nine and you rehearse it's like a play back then sitcoms were in front of a live audience now you tend to do comedies like you do movies you know they're they're shot like movies in the audience but back then you'd rehearse it like a play and you'd come in monday rehearse tuesday Well, we shot, our shoot night was Wednesday night. So you'd shoot, you know, until midnight. That was a 12-hour day. You'd come in at noon the next day, just do a table read, just read the script so the writers could see whether it worked or not. And then you went home. So that was an hour and a half of your Wednesday. Thursday, you'd do an eight, nine-hour day. Friday, eight-hour day. Maybe maybe Monday when you came back was a 12-hour day and shoot day. So it was like, and you'd work three weeks on, one week off. So it was just unbelievably luxurious. You worked hard because you had a performance in front of an audience at the end of the week or, you know but uh it was time-wise it was ridiculous i so i actually did get to be around my kids way more i always except one night a week would be able to put them to bed oh that's amazing yeah yeah it was an amazing life and that was my life for 17 years of my career has been that way what a
0: gift another geeky question along those lines when when you sort of look at the good place, which we loved, by the way, and, and I got to compliment you. I think you did a great job acting. This is such a geeky thing to say, but I was so impressed that once you sort of realize and I don't want to give it up for the listeners who don't hadn't watched the show yet, but when there's the shift, I feel like you did such a good job of acting that shift. Well, I remember thinking to myself, I was like, he's doing such a good job of changing this character, which to me was like. So kudos to that. But what were the big differences? Like, what did you miss or love about, you know, Cheers is in front of a, as we all know from just rote memory, in front of a live studio audience. But what's the difference in that you're acting in front of these people, as you said, every Wednesday night. And then, you know, you look at The Good Place and you're acting in front of, you know, the 20 people in the room, the 15 people in the room. What are the pros and cons of each of those experiences?
2: Well, I guess it's a little bit like theater. I mean, or for you performing in front of an audience as opposed to being in the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you go places that you wouldn't be able to go otherwise. I mean, I'm assuming your game through the energy and the feedback and the everything. Your game goes up a couple of notches when you're performing live. Yeah, and so that's true, and that's uh. That's a real high in an adrenaline rush, and I did that through my you know until I was about till I was about forty two or three and now I'm very grateful that I don't have to jam that much adrenaline into my body because it is a calmer way,
0: yeah, that would mess your nap ups
2: and i think yeah and I think <laughs> that that cable changed uh television so doing a half hour comedy in front of an audience it's pretty rare nowadays because we're so used to the film experience where you're pretending that it's real you know you don't hear an audience laughing you know you're so immersed in that now that it it almost works better not to have an audience by and large but i'm also grateful for it because i uh you get to try it over and over again. You don't have to nail it the first time, you know.
1: It's the equivalent of what all of us musicians are going through now, where we're used to being out on the road with an audience, and now it's just us with our phones live streaming. And we finish our songs. There's no clapping.
2: Truthfully, how's it going for you guys? So let's just say creatively, not personally, but how does that? how is this moment impacting you? Well,
1: I will say... Anytime that there is a scary kind of uncertainty uh, in my life, it tends to fuel creativity. So there's been a part of that, that that has been good creatively for me. But I was, you know, I was two shows into a tour. Actually, Dave and I were supposed to be down in Texas with our friend Matt Wirtz playing a show all together on sort of the day that everything shut down. So we all, we all had our calendars just completely clear out, as everyone did, but there's no,, uh, I mean, for me, it's been good because my my biggest fear is money related. I, I tend to worry about money all the time, no matter how much or little of it I have. It's just always a uh, a thing in the back of my mind. I actually, I heard an interview that you did, I think it was with Dax Shepard. And you were talking about, you said something that Mary had told you that has stuck with me that I, I feel like had a ch- tangible effect on me. She said to you that money is like, you are like a uh, a funnel or something like that. And money is just going to flow through. Don't Don't jam up the funnel and try to save up all this money for yourself. Just let it. Let the money come let the money go you know that's been really helpful but to have my entire calendar just completely zero out I for me just on this one tiny you know I want to be sensitive this is a horrible time and a lot of people are suffering but for me it had it had a positive effect because I got to see my like worst nightmare financially come true and now going forward it's almost like God was like look it's all been taken away and you're fine. Okay. Can you just calm down about the money thing for a minute? You're going to be fine. You know?
0: I think what, what was really interesting here in Nashville is it did sort of feel like everybody, everybody responds to these in such different ways. That's such an obvious thing to say, but it felt like the people that needed to rest have gotten a chance to rest. Like, I feel like a lot of my friends who tour a lot and they hit it really hard, you know, like, like you were bringing up the Osbournes, Ted, you know, like, they're dear friends of mine. And I think, you know, to catching up with them, like, I think it's been great for, you know, those guys to get a breath for a minute because they've just been hitting it so hard and they don't get in trouble for wanting a break now, you know, instead of having to go to your management and being like, Hey, listen, I've played 8 billion shows in the last three years. Um, so I think what's been interesting to watch is like some people need a break. And then it's been fun for me because, and I, John's been the same way. It sort of felt like, man, this is a really cool chance to sort of, double down on some things i haven't had time to do or uh explore some things that i haven't had just the chance to sit in my back studio you know john's sitting in his too um where you're like you know i've got a bunch of songs i've been wanting to finish and you know we got this podcast off the ground i've got another music podcast that i do and so it feels like a lot of us were like hey this is that chance to to like sort of in you know chase some some flights of fancy that maybe, you know, you just either didn't let yourself do or you didn't have time to do. Um, and, and you know, I think the more conversations, to your point, Ted, you said this about celebrity and and, and it's a different thing, but I do think it has the same sort of arc of their of, trajectory. I think a lot of people are going to feel differently about reengaging in music once we do just how we want to do it and what that's going to look like and how busy we want to be. Because, you know, a, a lot of, uh, my friends are in the same season of life, you know, where we have younger kids. And 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 I think people have really enjoyed getting to be around a lot more. And so I, I, I have a lot of conversations with people that are like, man, I just don't think I'm going to do it like I used to. You know, I think I want to rethink about how I approach my time and, and what I see as valuable. And I think to John's point, and I think you said this really well, John, I do think there's been a global in my group of friends, which John is in you know, of like, wow, the the world hadn't ended. You know, like we all kind of thought that if these few things stop happening, we were all just going to, you know, disappear or something. And, you know, I've, I've been really grateful that it hasn't been the case. If if not creating more new, interesting things, I will say that, said, that said, there's nothing more awkward than when you're doing one of those <laughs> Instagram lives and you're so used to, and Ted, this, this may be exactly your point with doing, you know, like instead of a, a multicam, you know, you're doing a one cam. But like, you know, you're used to playing these songs and, you know, it's just Pavlovian. You get done with the last drum and the you hear the claps and the, yeah, you know, and it's i would never forget doing my first Instagram live. And I had like bits ready. I had like, okay, I got some funny things that this will be a good little bit. And, I'll up to and it was like the worst blind date because, I you know, I would do the song that kind of, I wouldn't know where to look at the camera. <laughs> and it was sort of like, I look at it. <laughs> so that's one thing too would be like, you know, I'd try some little, you know, cause I tell kind of jokes a lot of my shows. And so I'd do something and it'd just be like, just dead thud yeah. DOA. Like the joke just goes out of your mouth and plummets to the ground. And then the worst, which was they have the scrolling comments. So you're also trying to juggle this really bizarre world of like, you know, guys, this is, Oh no, it's a, it's a Taylor guitar. So this, this next song, um, uh, I did get my haircut, Thank you, Karen. Uh, okay. The next song, you know, and then, and then, and lastly, which is way off subject, then my favorite thing happened in the first couple of weeks where all of me, John, all of us included, got so bored that when we'd see our friends log on Instagram live, your sole purpose was to detra- distract them and to crash their live session. Yeah. So you would just start. You look great. You look great. Look over here. Look over here. I got your attention. Ha ha! It's even great. And it was just—it was like armies of friends would just descend on your Instagram live account, you know. And you're trying not to laugh mid-song.
2: Amazing time. Amazing. It is. It is. And,
0: And 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 I think you know. I'm really curious to see in retrospect how we all feel. I think in the, and, and, you know, especially in the entertainment industry that we're all in, just kind of like what the takeaway, I talked to a friend of mine who works in NBC and he, we had the most fascinating conversation about, you know, just conversations he's having with his coworkers and how people feel. And, and to your point, Ted, and I love this is kind of how you started this, this interview, but you know, it just feels like everybody's got a chance to think about things again. And, and, and even more to your point, it's, it's a, we just wouldn't do this. Human nature is not to hit pause this significantly, you know? Yeah. You'll do it for a week. Some people get really, you know, intentional and take like a month off and, and, you know, do those things. But I think to really have a a few months to sit and kind of go like, how do I feel about this? Where am I? Like, how am I, let me take some inventory. It's such a, it's such a gift, you know?
2: It is. I mean, I, you know, my brain always goes to the activist, um, you know, I keep wanting to make points, and I shouldn't. But its it does feel like, you know, this was one of those major stop signs. There'll be more, you know. It's not, I hope that we can change our ways as a planet, you know. what's What's frightening is human nature, you know, is so, you know, especially in this country, you know. Don't tell me to wear a mask, you know. Kind of thinking, you know. Well, you know, climate change really, really is the big gorilla, you know, and, and it's going to bring more stuff that we're going to have to deal with. Um, so it would be nice if we could learn to live with less. It would be nice to know that we truly are our brothers' keepers, you know. Yeah. So. The weird thing
0: about the, the, this season, to me, is is going from the pandemic to what's happening. To, you know, our black friends and brothers and sisters is there is this common there's a common theme of we're having to actually sacrifice some things for the first time sort of globally. And I think I'm always so fascinated to see once in my heart how I respond because it's it's such a uh, spotlight on my fallen nature, you know, my imperfect self that like, I don't want to, I don't want to wear a mask in Home Depot. Why do I got to wear a mask? You know? And it's like, well, hold on, man, maybe it's not about you. And maybe it's you just caring for other people, whether it's going to affect them or not, you know, whatever it is. And then I think also with, with what's happening, you know, with our black friends is I'm like, man, I may have to inconvenience myself for, for people to, um, to move ahead. I may have to think differently. I may have to stop doing some things. I may have to read some things. I may have to not, you know, and I think it's interesting. These things are a little bit dovetail jointed in the season, which is the, you know, the sort of banner over it is just having to kind of give up some things that maybe you're used to doing yep. they are inconvenient, you know? And so it's weird to me that that's happening together, you know?
2: Yeah. I feel very strongly that if we do not tackle racial injustice, racial inequality, which is, is systemic, and whether we like it or not, just being white, you know, makes us part of that. Uh, and if we get this right there's not a prayer in hell that we will get climate change right because it is that you're bumping up against the exact same thing which is don't tell me how to feel or you know don't tell me that i'm my brother's keeper you know i'm a man blah 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 you know that you will have to yeah you'll have to grow up make sacrifices And, uh, you know, realize that you are part of the problem. You don't have to feel guilty. You just have to do something to make it better.
0: Well, and I think, listen, this is, this is a big thing to say, but I really believe this. And I I think sadly as a white guy, when I see it in my heart, I can thank the Lord, slow my head enough down to go like, gosh, I've got this in me. But we, sadly, as a, as a demographic in America, white people don't like not getting to do things. <laughs> and I think, you know, um, when you've been the majority, uh, you know, race in a country for 200 years plus years, you, you just get used to uh, luxuries. You get afforded these things. And I think I've really had to do a lot of self-searching to go like, man, I just am used to getting what I want. And I think it's not just, it's your point, it's not just affecting my friends, my my friends that are different race, it's affecting the environment, it's affecting a lot of things. So it's interesting that this season, for me, especially as a white guy, which is arguably the top of the totem pole socially, you know, uh, as, far, as far as what luxuries I get and sort of the things that I just don't have to think about certain problems, you know, this season has just felt like the spotlight is so on me and me having to grapple with like, Wow okay, there may be some some big boy decisions I have to make here, you know yeah. uh, that inconvenience me you know
1: I'm sure that's been frustrating. I'm sure you've probably gone through the whole gamut of emotions doing the environmental activist work that you've been doing for as long as you've been doing it. That's got to be frustrating to, to know that there is a, a better way and and the daily grind of kind of banging that noble drum. And, you know, probably taking two steps forward, one step back kind of a thing.
2: You know, and my kind of silly go-to psychological thing that I say to myself is when I get depressed or overwhelmed that, you know, how are we going to pull this off and da 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 And then you die, you know. So <laughs> what do you, you know, big, big deal. Sorry. Big deal. You, you know. Yeah. You know, you don't get an award for saving the planet or solving racial issues. You know, you just, you know, you just keep trying to do a little bit better every day and die. So do your best. Don't don't be afraid of rolling up your sleeves is what I keep trying to say to myself. Well,
0: Ted, you're a legend. So we 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 one last question, then we'll send you back yeah, into. The- I
2: was a legend. I We don't quite know what I am. Now. <laughs> well, let that. Well, what let is it-
1: the what is the level beyond legend? We don't know. Whatever that is, you, that's what you
0: are. Yeah, it's it's it has something to do with space and a scepter. I do know that. I don't know a what the title involved is, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> involved for sure, and it's definitely it's out the
2: scepter nowadays. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is. If there is one thing the pan- pandemic has reminded me, it's just so hard to get a scepter when <laughs> the sh- when that shop hey, when the wizard shop is closed. You
2: guys, thank you so much for inviting me on this because it is so nice to reach out of your own little you know, bubble to be able to talk and make human connection. And I know it's a podcast, but I I really appreciate that we're Zooming at the same time. And, you know, it's nice to meet you.
0: And this is the last question we always, this is the big, like, uh, this is the uh, end of the line question. And this is a big one. So you might need to buckle up and, or just immediately nap afterwards. What do you want your kids? And you actually just set this, you softballed this because you just mentioned the end of life, but what do you want your kids to say at your funeral?
2: Oh uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know yeah
0: that's the best reaction we've got. So uh, we've far. never gotten a better reaction.
2: <laughs> I hope there's a lot of laughter. Yeah, I hope there's a lot of laughter. Um it's so it's so weird. I'm 72, so you know the arc of one's life is a little more vivid for me. But I keep thinking you know when when you see, hear somebody die you know, uh, has gotten really, something's happened. Yeah, no, die, let's go with death. When someone dies, you go, what now? What did they do wrong? Let me let me look at this. They must have done something slightly wrong. You know, it's almost as if if I don't do the wrong things, then I won't die. You know, uh, I, w- I hope that my passing, my, or leading up to death I get to be, it's still my life, gosh, you know, golly. So I want to be able to not mourn. I don't want those last moments of living to be mourning. You know, it would be nice to be able to, I know you don't get to call your shots and who knows what will happen and I should be knocking on wood and it'll be very ironic at some point. But it would be nice not to have it be full of mourning. It would be nice if there was appreciation and laughter and humor still to be had and i would hope that my the the yeah the memory of me and some sort of wake or whatever it is would be the same that there would be gratitude and laughter uh, mm. would be nice to have it still be in the air
0: mm. god yeah. that's a good word
2: yeah. yeah yeah that's so powerful and lots of photos and really good photos i i'm gonna have oh. photo of
0: you should just you should just start a Dropbox now of like fu- funeral approved photos.
2: <laughs> so much fun! We're gonna pass each other in the street one day and go, "Gosh, I like that guy." I can't figure out why. I got- Who is that guy? <laughs> Who is that guy? His
0: face looks so much like a map. I can't remember why that is. <laughs> um, Ted thank you so much for your time. I'm really, really we we super duper appreciate. It's been it. great. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Time. And I hope you have a good editor. Good luck.
1: <laughs>
0: All you wonderful, beautiful, kind people. Thank you so much for listening to the episode.
1: If you have a second, please make sure to subscribe,
0: rate, and write a review. Unless it's bad. Because that stuff really does matter. And please follow us on socials. You can find us everywhere at Dadville Podcast.
1: Also, you can follow us each at Dave Barnes Music and at John McLaughlin to find out more about our music. Thanks for listening.